Prestige listeners, it's Derek, uh, joined as always by my co-host and friend Danny Bessner, uh, and we are very friend lucky comes second. Everyone, you'll notice friend uh, comes yeah, second. Well, it depends on the mood I'm in uh, this week. <laughs> it comes second, but uh, you know sometimes it comes first. Uh, we're very grateful and lucky to be joined this week by Juliet Liu, assistant professor at the University of British Columbia and co-host of the Belt and Road podcast. She is here to talk to us about. Belt and Road, which shamefully we have not really covered <laughs> on the show yet, as long as we've been doing it. Uh, so, Julia, thank you uh, for joining us and and uh, being the first person to really school us in this very important subject. Yeah, of course, it's a pleasure. So, since we haven't done an episode on Belt and Road before, why don't we just start with the very basics? What is Belt and Road? How did it come to be? Uh, and in particular, I would be interested in your sense of what people in the West and, and media and politics tend to get wrong or what are some of the most mm. common misconceptions uh, that people have about Belt and Road. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I'm just thinking about like a couple of years after the Belt and Road initiative was announced in 2013, a friend writing me and being like, I'm in a work meeting and we're supposed to brainstorm like, what will the world look like if the Belt and Road strategy succeeds? And I was like, I was like, it's not about succeeding. It's like, it's just like an approach to engaging with the rest of the, it's like a, a game that China. No, it's is a Machiavellian or... plot for world <laughs> domination. Yeah. So what will happen if China takes over the world? Um, so the Belt and Road Initiative, it was originally called One Belt, One Road Strategy, something like that. It's gone through a couple um, facelifts in terms of the name. But basically, when Xi Jinping, about a year after Xi Jinping came to power, um, became, well, he was in power, but became president of China, which was in 2012. Um, in 2013, he announced the One Belt, One Road Strategy. Um, and he originally announced it in Kazakhstan, which is um, interesting because China has has, you know, had less contact with Central Asia and was kind of using that as a place to say, like, we need to connect through the landlocked sides of our country. And yeah, they they called it the One Belt, One Road, kind of trying to evoke the history of China having Silk Road connections to Europe and through kind of its Western borderlands. Um, and in 2013, when that was announced, I mean, China had already been going out, quote unquote, it had had this um, policy, the going out policy since 1999. And that was, I think, one way I think we get we get the Belt and Road Initiative, kind of, we misunderstand it in the West is that we forget that China was kind of holding Chinese leaders were holding the country back from investing abroad um, up until the 90s, like they were really pitching, like, a trying to develop China first. And they were very concerned about letting capital go out because they had seen so many other countries, just, uh, you know, a rush of the most, ex you know, the most wealthy and educated folks going out of the country. And so they were really trying to focus on developing China domestically first, which was, I think, smart. Um, and then in the 2000s, like very slowly, like opening up channels that had been closed before for first state-owned enterprises and then private enterprises and, and individual entrepreneurs to start kind of 
engaging in trade and, and seeking out new markets abroad, which is, again, what most countries have done. But the Belt and Road Initiatives was a little bit of a rebranding, and it was kind of Xi Jinping's claim of um, kind of catalyzing a little bit more energy around that going out process. And over the last decade, because it has been a decade now, um, it has come to encompass everything. It's been just like a slogan to define, you know, to motivate people around going abroad. And it's come to be an umbrella term for like Xi Jinping's foreign engagement broadly. Um, So yeah, super nebulous, I would say. So this is a very large question, but I think it's important to help frame the debate, which is this China, are they capitalist? Are they socialist? Very, very complex question. But in, in yeah. 40 seconds or less, how would you describe it? Or like, and, and, and more seriously, uh, you could take as long as you want, but how would you even approach that question, which really preoccupies a lot of the American left? Right. And it might be, it not be, it might not be worthy of the preoccupation that it does, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to slightly dodge, but I think it's basically at the at the root of how the Chinese economy and all economic engagements are seen. Um and so I would say that China is, you know, not fully it didn't neoliberalize in and I think it didn't neoliberalize in some of the ways that were actually really smart for the country. Like on one hand, I think it's kept a pretty bloated state sector. Um On the other hand, the ways in which Western critics talk about China not being fully capitalist comes also from a a lot of intellectual baggage in the West, right? So so China still protects a lot of state industries, especially we're going to talk about infrastructure because the Belt and Road Initiative was initially primarily about infrastructure, building connectivity through mostly China's West and, and, and maritime kind of connections. But infrastructure was is one of the places where China has been especially kind of remained a bit bloated in terms of state subsidies, um, protecting those sectors. Um, but when the West kind of, when a lot of people critique China for still being not fully capitalist, they, the two baggage, the pieces of baggage I think they're bringing to that are one, kind of like a Cold War framing of like communism versus, you know, communism and market socialism as China transitioned into um, just being this political opposition to the kind of democratic liberal you know, con- contrast um, and the expectation that went with that, that as China like entered the WTO into in the 2000s and started opening that China would democratize as well and also become a lot more transparent. Um, and so the baggage alongside that question, I think, is that Cold War framing and also that expectation that the economic change that China has gone through, which China has become much, it has, it has opened and marketized the vast majority of its economy. And so in that sense, it's become very much a capitalist power. Um, but it's kind of protected a, a, some bloated kind of inefficient state sector a- aspects. And it's also protected, I think, some, um, some aspects of the economy and society that should have been protected, that, that have been well protected from like the, ravages of neoliberal policy. So a little bit complicated. And I, I think 
people continue to debate it because the answer is different depending on how you define capitalism and what part of the economy that you're looking at. But I usually try to encourage people to look at different sectors of the Chinese economy as differently categorized. Um, so again, infrastructure, construction, iron, steel, this stuff, it's like still super controlled by the state and supported by the state. But when you talk about a, like a, a bunch of other sectors in the Chinese economy, you, you they're almost like less protected and less kind of directed by the state than you would see in other countries. So this might be a historian's question, but beyond the pure facts <laughs> on the ground, a lot of this has mm-hmm. to do with ideological vision. You mm-hmm. know, uh, what what does China in 2023 imagine its project to be? Are they building towards the world communist revolution <sighs> or is it something different? I wish the world. Co- yeah, I don't. So I think one thing that's surprising and, um, and differs, I guess, especially as an American personally, and um, you guys as well, it, it differs from our country is, is that I don't think China actually has ambitions to have a lot of influence in other countries. I think its engagements outside are very much for... Totally agree. And everyone in America thinks it's opposite. I wrote a big piece on US-China relations for Harper's and everything you read in DC is like China's going to take over the world. And it's like... They're trying to take over the world. They want to kill you and everyone you've ever loved. It is absolutely... (laughs) It's projection. It's Freudian projection. It's it's, it's, it's the liberal Protestant millenarianism that defines you as foreign policy being projected onto another nation or culture. At least that's that that's my belief. But even if it doesn't mm-hmm. want a world goal within China, yeah. do, do they want some sort of like ultimate communist society? Because that's a lot of times what you hear on the left. It's like, yeah, they use, you know, market socialism or blah, blah, blah. But it's ultimately in the service of creating a society where you could critique in the afternoon and, and make fish in the morning or whatever it may be. <laughs> I mean, I think that um, I think it's gotten away from that ideology. I think some Chinese leaders really, truly have been committed to that throughout history. But I do think like um, I think that the Communist Party is interested in self-preservation overall. And I just I mean, I'm basing that on people that study. I study mostly China overseas. And so the only thing I guess I should add as a caveat to like China doesn't want to take over the world. It does want to reshape the world so that it will be a good place for China to exist in. So there are ways in which like China is still trying to change the rules of the game to its favor. And but that's what every country does. Um, so that's my caveat to the. How light. dare you? <laughs> Only the U.S. is allowed <laughs> Not to. Not the United States. It's so no, we wild. don't. These are the liberal rules of the international order has handed down. They are objective. It's so We're not funny. trying to change anything. When you read Brookings and when you read CFR, it's like China, they enter these institutions and then they try to shape them for their own oh, yeah. interests. It's like, how dare they? It's like, uh, it's yeah, so how, absurd. You're the it's only so ones that are allowed to do that. It's, it's so infuriating. It's like, I don't, if I had to like work in Washington, D.C., I would literally be catatonic. Like the, the amount that that sort of thought is allowed to go on. <laughs> Like only we're allowed to do it is so absurd. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I assume we're going to talk about debt, so that'll be really fun. That's like the most hypocritical part of like studying the Belt and Road and critiques of it. Um, but we can get to that in a second because oh, what was I going to say? That's the second part. Okay, so that's the other thing. It's like yeah, the the Communist Party I think is is interested in preservation because they I think China's Communist Party leaders believe that they have. I mean, they are committed to the the preservation of Chinese interests writ large. Um, but people don't realize because it's really hard to see that there's a ton of tension between the party and other actors in China. Um, and so we also, I really miss that from the outside, partly because, um, sometimes we buy the Chinese communist party's 
propaganda to the rest of the world that they're so unified to like a point where we talk about, you know, Chinese people as robots, it's like Chinese laborers as robots. We talk about China writ large and forget to kind of differentiate between state party people, you know, economic actors. So there's, there's tons of division within China, but I think the communist party, which is in charge of kind of projecting the image that is picked up by the outside world, um, as unified is, is at, at work really preserving the communist party, not necessarily making sure that the communist dream is alive in, in or outside of China. Let's get back to infrastructure, because as you Mm -hmm. mentioned, this began uh, very heavily oriented toward big infrastructure projects. Um, Why don't, why don't we talk about maybe a couple of those that are, uh, that exemplify uh, what Belt and Road is, uh, maybe the Chinese-Pakistan uh, economic corridor, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, I'm, I'm curious, it seems like this project was a response to a perceived gap in the international financing system or, or a response to maybe the World Bank's monopoly on this kind of development financing. And I'm curious how... BRI relates to things like the BRICS Development Bank or other kind of initiatives uh, to broaden the, the the scope of infrastructure financing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know specifically how much decision makers were responding to shifts, but um, in like specifically World Bank or BRICS BRICS kind of funding of of infrastructure. But I think what thing again, like going back to I like working with. I don't know, myths or just like, what is it that we assume that isn't that useful? You know, there was a, there was a huge gap. I mean, right now when, um, when the U S is talking about the gap in funding for infrastructure, they cited at like something like 40 billion by 2020, 2035. Um, so there's a huge need for infrastructure. And a lot of that has been created by like 30, 40 decades of neoliberalism where we've been defunding those kind of, um, initiatives, but also what what I think what woke Chinese leaders up to the need to invest in 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 kind of the infrastructure systems overseas, especially amongst its neighbors, um, was first of all I think the nineteen ninety seven Asian financial crisis really shook the whole region, and it should have shaken the whole world a little bit more <laughs> to predict two thousand eight. Um, but then also like the the global financial crisis in two thousand eight. Those two things suggested, I think, to Chinese leaders that they can't rely on the powers that be to keep the world um, stable enough for China to kind of keep selling all of its goods globally and happily. And they just saw so much um, instability created by those crises that China started thinking, I think, a lot more about needing to take a more of a role globally and and about um, investing in stability overseas, especially amongst its neighbors, as something that will help domestic stability. Um, there was also, I think, the infrastructure system and the financial system within China were just really over capacity and overheated. China had just simply had too much capital. Um, they needed to invest it abroad and had been holding companies back from investing it abroad um, since the 90s. And they'd been, like I was saying before, like there is too much state support for sectors that feed into infrastructure construction, which has also meant that China is the best at building roads and big infrastructure in the world. They just can't be competed with because partly because the supplies for infrastructure construction are somewhat subsidized by the 
by the Chinese state, but also because they've just started being the ones that deal with construction supplies and deal with training engineers and deal with like having enormous, um, enormous development companies. And I think all of this, so, so that's, I think part of China's focus on infrastructure. And then if you just look at pure geography, I mean, as China starts realizing we need more market connections, we need to build stability in our, in our neighborhood and beyond for our own benefit. Unlike the U.S., unlike a lot of other major global powers, China is completely landlocked on one side and landlocked like not just any type of landlocked. This is like the Himalayas. <laughs> it's just it's a like it's a level of um, challenges infrastructure wise um, for getting to markets like China and Europe are, are trading more and more. It's incredibly important for China. Um, so getting through Central America and, and South Asia is uh, sorry, Central Asia and South Asia is is really important for China. So those things, I think, built the need for and, and, and China's ability to focus on infrastructure overseas. And, and we'll get into this, but it's ironic because infrastructure is very risky as an investment and very expensive. So that's part of why um, since the 70s and 80s, states around the world had been struggling to invest in it. And part of why the World Bank had really not been it had been allowing the gap to grow and grow, um, especially. And but but by two thousand eight, the gap between like what global financiers were providing for infrastructure and what was demanded, uh, at, you know, based on a couple decades of of need not being met, was just huge. So let's talk about. I guess I want to ask this question, but we'll come back to it after we uh, take a little sojourn into the world of debt. But I want to ask up front, was the aim here to make money as a, as a sort of financial institution to, you know, fund these projects with the expectation of being repaid with interest? Uh, was it to increase Chinese soft power globally? Again, you know, they're not trying to remake, they're not trying to control the world, but they, they do, uh, you know, the, there is an intention to, to sort of build influence. Uh, was it both of those things? Were there other factors? Like, what was the the underlying? Because I think one of the issues that's that's come up more and more is whether the these all these possible goals are really compatible with each other. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that this is where like the the way I start kind of general lectures or talks on. China overseas is to try to like really drive home how diverse Chinese actors are. And so I do think I would say multiple factors and more were driving the interest in, in going out and specifically in an infrastructure focused um, overseas engagement strategy. Um, I talked already about like China's general desire for um, stability through investing in development in its neighboring countries. I think that was part of it in a very vague way, but in a way that like all big powers have to think that way increasingly as they become big enough to need um, to need foreign markets and foreign trade to keep going, to keep growing. So that's kind of like the background. And then the other background piece, I think, is the overcapacity, like way too much capacity in the, in the infrastructure sector. So like when I lived in China in like the, in from 2009 to 2000, I was like in and out until like the late 2010, basically until COVID. But you see these like ridiculous infrastructure projects, like build a road and then rip the road up and put the piping back in. Like, why didn't you just put the piping in before? And that was part like kind of this crazy amount of construction in China was because they just had too many construction workers they needed to keep employed and too many big companies that were just ready to build. So they needed to go out in that sense. But 
Um, so the, the first kind of suggestion, making money, I do think there was a little bit of over-optimism among a lot of Chinese decision makers. They are the best and the most efficient in the world at making infrastructure, but infrastructure is very, very risky as an investment. A lot of times the costs are all up front. The risks are really hard to calculate. Um, and the payoff is a, a negotiation that goes on forever. You know, like whether a, a road is going to be paid off by tolls or by loans from the local government, it's, it's very complicated to do the financing, but it's all about like tons of risk and cost up front and a very long payoff for a lot of infrastructure. So making money was expected, I think partly because in China domestically, there are a lot of supports that allow for infrastructure development to be profitable for countries. And I don't think Chinese actors realized how difficult it would be to replicate what they were really good at domestically overseas. And so I think there was a lot of optimism that it would make money for China. Um, and then again, like making money for China also had to do with opening up trade, accessing foreign markets and foreign new foreign technology, um, et cetera. So that would be another way that I think more reasonably and more expectably, um, more reliably, I should say, probably Chinese actors have made money just in terms of kind of engaging more. Um, and then soft power became much more emphasized later on, I think, in the project. So after 2013, um, but from the start, I think it was really emphasized. Like I remember going to meetings in Beijing and people would say like this, those Western powers, they just hang around in countries for years doing nothing plant, like helping local people plant some rice, like no one cares. And they were kind of right. People are exhausted by the American led development project. Um, but they really emphasized, you know, Chinese leaders were emphasizing that China's approach to development aid is something like building things you can see and touch. Like a lot of people were saying that in the early 2010s, things that you can see and touch, big infrastructure. And this goes along with like kind of ways in which the Chinese state, but a lot of states for for many decades have, have really loved to build infrastructure as like a big presentation of state power. Um, so soft power in the, in, in building infrastructure was kind of expected. And I think that's the, one of the biggest thing that's, that has kind of flopped for China, but, they have also become more and more focused on like human to human connections. And there's, they've, they've kind of woven in a lot of um, people to people engagement and things like scholarships, things like Confucius institutes. Um, and like, so Maria Repnikova writes a lot about this. She's at, um, at, in Georgia and she focuses on like media, but also a growing body of soft power engagements that have become huge. So I think all of these things were motivating Chinese actors Um especially early on, and then increasingly new ideas of what, what, how this would serve China were wrapped in. Let's talk a little bit about how the, what the, the soft power angle of this and maybe some of the unexpected consequences uh, for China. And, and, uh, you know, there is the debt issue. And again, I want to, we're, we're going to get, you know, more into that as we <laughs> yeah. kind of talk about Western reaction or overreaction, I guess. But, but there have been, uh, I would I would assume some unforeseen consequences. I, I come back to uh, CPEC, the the Pakistan Economic Corridor, which has put it's painted a, a bullseye on Chinese nationals to some degree in Baluchistan because they yeah. are viewed as outsiders. There is a very active separatist militant movement in Baluchistan. Mm -hmm. uh, they've been attacked. They've been targeted by militants. Uh, I'm right. I'm curious, and you know, we can maybe you can talk a little bit more about that particular 
uh, thing. But but I'm, I'm curious if there have been other instances of people react or populations reacting maybe not so positively to these Chinese branded projects. Yeah, I think, I mean, the preface to this is that, and you should, like you guys were talking about interest in like getting into more Chinese history. If you do, Maria Ref- Maria Repnikova is like a force to be reckoned with. She does super interesting work and she looks at soft power and emphasizes that like, it's an impossible thing to kind of measure. And I think one of the things that hap- has happened is that like the predispositions that a lot of populations had towards China have, have been amplified. So if they, you know, like the it's kind of like having an allergy. If you have an allergy to something, you get exposed a lot more. The reaction is like stronger and stronger. If you really like something and you get more, I don't know. So there's, it's hard to measure soft power. And also it's hard to like, just to, to, most of the ideas about what causes improvements or, you know, were you know, bad outcomes in, in terms of soft power efforts are usually like pontificating. It's really hard to measure scientifically. Um, so, but yeah, you've definitely seen, you've seen some places where like populations were predisposed to like, kind of like China and they've been really appreciative of infrastructure building. You also see places where, um, probably one of the biggest mistakes China has made that China, that Chinese leaders are getting a lot better at is not knowing how to deal with domestic politics that are super divided. So Pakistan is a great case. You talked about, I mean, Myanmar too. I mean, the, the history of Chinese engagements in borderland, um, Borderland groups in Myanmar that are, you know, anti or in conflict with the government actively or not particularly close. That has always been dicey for China to navigate. Um, so there is an example of the Mietson Dam in, in the borderlands of Myanmar that, um, created a lot of backlash towards China, um, and some, and played into a lot of existing political divisions in the country. Um, and then you have places like Laos where, you know, there was, there's this train project that has just been completed. Um, and there have been pretty strong anti-China sentiments in some corners of the country, but like not, it's not a unified sentiment. And yeah, so the soft power aspect and the degree to which China's increased investment through the Belt and Road Initiative has affected soft power stuff. I, I think it's really hard to measure. It's been and hard to say whether it was like the amplification of predispositions or, you know, people like really looking at projects and judging them. And I think, sorry, part of this, the last piece of the question of whether the Belt and Road Initiative has affected soft power is, is that, you know, one thing that's so left out of the story and a lot of analysis of the Belt and Road Initiative is host country dynamics, like whether or not the elite interests or the, you know, the interests of the general populace in the country have been served by infrastructure projects that China has built. Um, and, you know, whether or not there are other developers in the country, like Japan is super active in Indonesia and Indonesia has used Japan and, and, and Chinese interest in developing infrastructure to play off each other in, in ways. So the degree to which, you know, the, the, the pre-existing conditions of like other development um, aid sources being in the country and the degree to which, you know, divides between elite, um, and the general populace, or like you said, you mentioned, um, in Pakistan, like divides within the country and across regions. Um, those had a big impact as to how China's outside influence was, was perceived. Let's talk a little bit. We've, uh, uh, most of this has, has focused, I think on, on, 
projects and involvement in Asia. Let's talk mm. about uh, Belt and Road spread into Africa, which has become yeah. or it became a, a you know point of contention with the United States. That's a region that where maybe there are fewer preconceptions uh, about China just because the you know the there's not uh, as much contact. How did that begin? How did the engagement with African countries begin? And and what's been sort of the overriding uh, impact of Belt and Road in uh, in the African continent? African continent. Yeah. Well, so that's another place I think where we like end up. Um, painting broad pictures of a super diverse region. Um, and so China's connections to African countries are very diverse. Like some countries, especially countries that had Maoist or communist movements um, during the during the Cold War, they, China built really strong relationships with them. Um, and it, it's just a really, it's a country to country thing. Um, I came, I, I mostly study land and agricultural investments. Um, and, and so in the, in the early 2010s, it's super interesting because, um, China was a big focus in, in terms of uh, foreign acquisitions of land in Africa. And it was funny because there was like not a huge presence of Chinese investment, but it was such a focus of media coverage. And so in some ways, like the perception by former colonizers that, a new colonizer is in town was a big part of the story of how China in Africa has been told and still is told. And I'm just like, so impressed by how Af African voices have kind of risen up to diversify that picture and to tell very different stories. Um, and so you see completely different things. So like in Angola, for example, Angola is like has oil is a huge part of the economy. China is very, really oil poor. China's relationships with a lot of problematic countries across the world is partly because they do not have the oil reserves that we have. Um, and so China's relationship with Angola was very, it basically China overnight um, became a really big investor in infrastructure in, in Angola. And, um, but that's been very different than, for example, China's relationship with Ghana, which, I mean, I, I can't speak in as much detail about those places, but, um, cause I'm most of my research is in, in Asia, but like the places that stand out are, are places like, um, oh gosh, I'm going to get this wrong, but there's some great research, I think, on Ethiopia in the communications sector. So Dingfei is at Cornell now and we interviewed her and she does like really cool research on um, Ethiopia and how Ethiopia has harnessed competition between Chinese actors in the communication sector to like get them to establish communications and telecom infrastructure and then like take it over by the Ethiopian state. So there's been like really big differences too in terms of how African, certain African governments have been able to, um, yeah, like kind of ranging from, I think, Angola, where Chinese, in, you know, investment was very heavy. And that was that Angola case is talked a lot about when people fear a huge, in, like, rise in influence of China because of its investments. Um, and then there are other examples, I think, like Ethiopia and other countries where um, the the local state, the, the domestic state has just harnessed Chinese investment, taken it over for itself and made it into something that they are able to direct much more carefully for the country's own good. Um, so there's there's a big diversity, I think, of, of cases in the continent. This leads us then into the debt discourse. This is the big, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of point of contention for 
the U.S. and other Western governments that want to criticize Belt and Road, want to criticize China, warn countries, especially in Africa, you know, you're uh, this is dangerous for you. You shouldn't be doing this, you know, very paternalistically and <laughs> yeah. uh, without any sense that like what, where, you know, where else can you turn? Uh, there's no right. other system for financing big infrastructure projects, especially. But the big criticism is that this is this is debt trap. This is Mm -hmm. these are being these projects are being designed intentionally to uh, for countries to be to fail to pay them back to to go into default. At which point China would swoop in and seize assets, and this is all like baked into the system. This is part of the plan. Uh, That doesn't seem to be at all accurate. But you can you know maybe comment on that. Uh, Just in general, is this? Uh, does does this seem like a fair criticism, or is it uh, being hyped up for, shall we say, political reasons? Uh, yeah, it's it's basically been completely disproven on on too many levels to count, which we can go through happily. It's it's uh, it's it's the dis it's so dip- disproportionate how much it's caught on in the media versus how much evidence there is for like ar- making an argument this way. So it was, you know, it started out as. Um, a gesture by an Indian academic named um, Brana Chalane, or yeah, sorry about pronunciations. But I mean, he was just kind of talking about Chinese government leveraging debt burden us in smaller countries towards geopolitical ends. And this was super early on. There wasn't really a lot of uh, Chinese investment then to show that that was happening. It was picked up by like two Harvard grad students that wrote a paper on this. And then of course, the Trump administration latched onto it in 2018 and just were like, boom, just bringing it up in as many speeches as they possibly could. But there's there's this really amazing Liberian scholar who he I, he has my favorite quote where he just says like, um, his name is Guda Moore. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right too. But he says the language of debt trap diplomacy resonates more in Western countries, especially the US and is just rooted in anxiety about China's rise as a global power rather than a reality in Africa. And I would extend that to a lot of other countries. Like the Hembantota port in Sri Lanka is like the example that everyone brings up. But yeah, I mean, there's multiple levels at which this is argued um, and argued against. And, and I can go into that, but it's basically been anyone that studies debt and anyone that studies Chinese lending will tell you that there's no way that China is practicing debt lending in order to trap countries. If anything, it's been the opposite, which is hilarious um, because the Chinese government has been slow to admit how bad they've lost money in lending. Uh, But the other way it's kind of usually disproven is by comparing Chinese lending to Western institutions that are lending or just like the international private sector lending um, in which the Chinese kind of lending does not come out as any more predatory than in fact, a lot, and a lot of times, a lot less predatory. Yes, I mean, let's talk about that because there was a report that was issued just last year that said, for all the mm-hmm. talk about, uh, you know, the Chinese debt load crushing developing nations, uh, countries in Africa owe, I think, three times uh, the amount of debt, like the amount of debt that they owe to China, that three times bigger than that is the amount of debt that they owe to private Western lenders. Exactly. Uh, there's yeah. always there's always mm-hmm. a lot of talk about in the context of debt relief, the need for China to be more flexible about restructuring 
debt and, 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 you know, especially for these kind of struggling developing countries. I, I'm, I'm curious, have they done that? Is this, you know, it's, it seems like another thing that's been overblown mm-hmm. is sort of, you know, China's not willing to restructure debt when really it's still the Western private lenders that are the problem. But, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about what Chinese, uh, the Chinese government has done to uh, accommodate countries that are having difficulty repaying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I think a little bit of the background to this question, too, is like, it's interesting, because um, even speaking to Chinese leaders in the early two th- like 2010s, when stuff was just starting to when foreign engagement and these and these infrastructure investments were increasing, they kind of were complaining in in kind of you know, behind the scene complaints of like, ugh, like uh, Western institutions have already invested in all the places that are profitable to invest. We're left with the riskiest, shittiest places to invest, which is kind of true. I mean, um, if you, so if you, if you look at where China invests, there's a lot of places that like most institutions would look at and say like, no way I'm not building, a, I'm not investing in a port there. And this again, gets back to the other point, which is that infrastructure is so rarely profitable, um, it makes a lot of the critiques of the Belt and Road Initiative kind of, um, I, I don't know, kind of humorous because like infrastructure doesn't make money very easily and very well. But so anyway, so China has invested in a lot of high risk places, which um, ends up looking kind of not great sometimes when when you look at overall how much, but it doesn't compare in, in volume to how much has been lent. Um, like you said, to Africa, even China is such a small piece of the pie. And China has done a lot of actually... Um, for debt forgiveness and other ways of restructuring debt that anyone in a financial institution would like cringe at. Like it, it, China basically, you know, the, the Chinese leadership have been slow and very reticent to even admit, but they basically got themselves into a lot of trouble by their optimism in the early 2010s that this would actually make money, that a lot of these, um, that a lot of these loans would actually turn a profit or even end up being at least breaking even. And so in 2019, China itself like had a lot of, there were a lot of announcements going on in the years after the initiative was started where like Xi Jinping himself or Chinese leaders were saying to Chinese actors, like you need to make smarter decisions about who you lend to because they were starting to realize that they were not going to get their money back in a lot of cases. And they established in, in 2019 some some rules for Chinese lenders to encourage them to be a bit more conservative. Um, and then even after all of this kind of a lot, a lot of cases of specific like um, forgiveness or restructuring in favor of the debtor country. Um, there were even more, especially in the Africa situation, um, sorry, in the Africa context, in response to U.S. criticism, Chinese institutions even made further goodwill gestures, postponing debt repayments. Um, the report that I see is says like roughly $750 million in postponed repayments. Um, and so it's the debt trap thing is so funny because it's almost it's been so overblown compared to the evidence but it's also interesting because i think chinese leaders are a bit embarrassed um as to how unprofitable (laughs) a lot of their lending has been and are really desperately trying to reform their approaches to investing um and lending overseas so that they don't get stuck with so many unprofitable loans um for themselves so one of the big claims that President Joseph Robinette Biden might make is that China is supporting ideological states around the world, that mm-hmm. it 
it, it sends money to ideological friendly regimes. Everything that I've looked at suggests that that is not the case. But could you talk a little bit about how the role ideology does or doesn't play in terms of the Belt and Road Initiative and who is or isn't funded? Yeah, I guess I'm wondering what we mean by ideology. Is this like fellow we authoritarian only support communist states. We only support authoritarians. <laughs> yeah. We only support communists. We only support what what have you. That these are ideological driven decisions. Mm. I think. I mean, I haven't seen anything arguing that. I I almost I hesitate to comment because I don't. I haven't seen anything testing that that idea. I've seen a lot about up talk about authoritarian kind of leaders being held up by the CCP, which um, I think goes back a little bit to the the comments by people I've interviewed in the past of saying like, uh, we've been left with the worst places to invest. Um, but I don't, I definitely have never, I've never heard like a strategic approach either among Chinese sources of do, taking that, um, that tact towards investment. Um, and I haven't seen anything kind of trying to test the critiques of it from a research perspective. So, but that's super, yeah, it's interesting. I haven't, I haven't explored that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's an interesting issue because that really, you know, if this is a, a country that is trying to spread its mm. ideology and promote alternative systems, which is what the U.S. national security strategy does indeed say China is trying to do, uh, mm -hmm. that it would be worth investigating whether this relates in any way, shape or form to reality. And my, under, my, yeah. my understanding is that it does not. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it might be an interesting issue to explore. Yeah. And histor historically, like the way China kind of metered out development aid in its in the early years when it was starting to do that, like the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, it was mostly symbolic. And but it was very much with fellow countries that were experimenting with socialism um, or communism and, and kind of borrowing Maoist ideas. Um, but I think that's really gone. I think that's really gone away. I think Chinese leaders don't try not like actively try not to emphasize that as part of what drives their um, ideology. And like, if you look at kind of how um, China has collected uh, diplomatic loyalty, for example, in, in China's Taiwan policy, like a lot of times, um, especially with smaller countries, China will be using diplomatic kind of negotiations to encourage countries to acknowledge China's sovereignty over Taiwan and things like that. I don't think it really follows um, those lines so much as just a case-by-case -case basis kind of thing. So, Juliet, this is kind of a big discourse question, and and if it's if there's no good way to answer it, uh, you know, feel free to tell me so, and we'll just cut this yeah. if it doesn't work. Uh, it's <laughs> the magic of podcasting. It is. Uh, but it seems it strikes me that part of the the debt trap discourse is rooted in this vision of like China as this just like black box monolith of unspeakable and like undefinable levels of capacity. Just the notion that mm. uh, the Chinese state would be capable of taking over like uh, uh, ports and railroads and all these like different infrastructure uh, things all over the world. Basically, it right. seems like there's this overestimation, let's say, or, or kind of cartoonish estimation of the capacity of the Chinese state to manage these things such that you mm. would then say they're doing this deliberately because they want to take over, uh, you know, bus routes in, in uh, Jakarta or whatever. It's just, right. it just seems silly to me, but, but uh, I don't know. You, you, 
observe this stuff more closely than I do. Well, I think I think that there's like that's like a really thing good thing to go into, I think, because I've seen some people talk about this that I really admire, like Jake Werner and Toby, um, Toby Chow, and they they do a lot of work. They're looking a little bit at these like nebulous questions of like to what extent does anti-Asian racism connect with how we see China as a global actor? And I think I think there's real meat there, but it gets into the realm of like how we think of discourses and how we think of like hidden logics, like social logics of exotic others. And so when I think of like, I don't know, when I think of like how discourses work, when you have this like new force, like a, glo- like a China that's suddenly becoming global, it's like you have these like tangible things that are like real things like the infrastructure projects. So on the ground, it's like China's new in Africa, like China's relatively new in Africa. The number of Chinese faces in certain places across the world is increasing at at a surprising pace. And so that's like, just like visually or on a gut level as a human, like, yeah, like exposure to China is a new thing that people are coping with. And obviously exoticism comes with when you're new. Um, and then next to that, like the really other tangible thing is like infrastructure has always been something that we invest like all this weird ideas of social power. And it's like symbolic, you know, building enormous dams or building big projects that are made of concrete is like, it like has these attachments of like masculinity and power and, you know, somehow like the, the strength of the state in them. And that's like for financial reasons, like I talked about, like it's, expensive to build stuff that there is that big and it serves a broader populace it serves kind of bigger state building kind of objectives in general like connectivity and the spread of markets and the spread of surveillance and control and connect yeah connection in both good and bad ways but um and so the just the rise of and china's engagement as an infrastructure player you know so powerfully dominating the world of infrastructure um, and then just the exoticism of China, since it has been very closed for so long. I think those are things that are on the ground that are like, yeah, of course, these are these are things that people are like not sure how to deal with. But when you add on to that, like the old Cold War fears of the other, the even older kind of like Edward Said Orientalism, like people in the West have been trained through like since the colonial era to see people of color, but especially Asians um, as like a group that are scary and seen in, in a very kind of monolith way. And a lot of the ways in which China is talked about as so resonant of Japan, like 20 years ago um, ideas that it's a yellow wave or yellow takeover or associations with, um, with, you know, disease are very well predate COVID-19. And so all these ways in which like we have these kind of background things in our head of, you know, the hegemonic power has been the US for a long time, any shift is alarming on like a larger symbolic level. And then this kind of existing predisposition again to seeing Asians as others. I think this feeds into kind of the ways in which infrastructure is an alarming thing to see changing and a big, powerful thing. And so I think that there's, um, I think there's ways that are very compelling arguments to be made that we see China more as Chinese actors as more monolithic than we see other actors from other countries. Um, and as more exotic. And then this plays into an inability to see infrastructure projects, which we already associate with power as less than threatening when they come from China. I think there's like this weird blender mix of all these kind of 
yeah, all these kind of um, sentiments that that are hard to parse out when we actually look at well, how do I actually feel and why do I feel this way? Why am I so threatened um, by the rise of China specifically through infrastructure investments? But I think that's really there. And it's um, there's a clear history to those ideas. And when we think of them ex- intersection, intersecting the, the ways in which China has been feared and the Belt and Road Initiative has been feared and reacted to in such kind of visceral, guttural ways, it, it makes sense based on that history, I think. So I think we're at a at a wrap up point. Mm-hmm. I guess as a yeah. as a concluding question, um, I would I would like to get your thoughts on how Belt and Road has changed, and I, I think mostly in terms of how the Chinese government regards it. Let's say, mm-hmm. um, or how how it seems to be regarding it in the wake of you know, all the things that have happened since the, the program was, or the initiative was, was started, the, the difficulties in, uh, you know, collecting, uh, in collection, you know, that they've encountered, uh, mm. the, the financial crisis in 2008, obviously changes in the Chinese economy as it shifts right. away from manufacturing toward more of a service industry, uh, based economy, uh, COVID and, Mm. Uh, not, you know, both the domestic, the lockdowns, and then this kind of abrupt uh, end of the lockdowns that seems to be going, you know, who knows how well, uh, but also the the economic impact that COVID had around the world. Like how how has Belt and Road changed because of these things? And uh, if at one point it was possible to say that, let's say, you know, running a bank with the intention of um, – you know, making money and developing trade and, and serving all these economic goals is compatible with a broader foreign policy agenda. Is that still the case anymore? You know, as you're going, putting people into collections and trying to get your, uh, get your debts paid, can you do that and still kind of be, uh, putting this program forward as a foreign policy tool? Uh, because people, of course, don't like debt collectors very much. So I'm curious uh, whether that's still that's still a thing that can hold together or where, whether it's still coherent in that sense. Yeah, well, I think that, I think one way, well, one interesting thing in the question of coherence is I think that um, the Belt and Road Initiative has always been a lot less concrete of a policy instrument or mechanism than the outside world has thought. And like, this goes back to me feeling like um, my, my overarching kind of assessment that like the Chinese state projects unity and projects strength and projects a lot of things that um, are a product of it. It, it trying to, it's mostly projecting things that are it's, it's hoping and aspiring to, but not actually kind of still working on. So I think that the Belt and Road Initiative from the beginning has been more of a slogan than it has been a, a concrete plan or concrete um, set of actual policy or institutional supports. Like it, it has been a slogan that the Chinese central government has hoped that a bunch of people would attach to. And interestingly enough, like a lot of slogans, you know, 10 years on, it doesn't have that power anymore. Um, partly because of Western pushback and our, partly because it's just old. And so if you ask Chinese folks, like they don't hear about the Belt and Road initiative that much anymore. They're hearing about other new ways of talking about China's global engagements. Um, but the Belt and Road Initiative is not a catchy slogan anymore. It's it's old news a little bit, and so it's it's less and less popular in Chinese media and um, in the in the kind of speeches of Chinese leaders. So it's um, as a, as a slogan, I think it's lived its life. But um, yeah, in terms of living going forward, 
I think you've asked me, that was such a like complex set of questions to conclude in. You were asking about like the con the sustainability of this, like lo this debt project as a longer term thing. And okay. I know where right, I was going. And, and the I foreign policy now. aspects. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, so I think what's interesting is that, um, the investments China has made is a lot of the infrastructure has is having more and more impact, even though the loans are also growing in their how problematic they are for China. And so, like, again, with the I work in Laos, the, the train project just got up and running in 2019. And people are really it's changing the country. And so a lot of the infrastructure established, even if the debt is going to be saddled to China for longer than it hoped, it's it's increasing connectivity in in neighboring countries. Um, and I think the reaction of the U.S. in trying to promote this, like Biden's idea of build back better for the world, um, and it's grown into kind of looping other G7 and G20 countries into investing more in infrastructure. Like there's still this, you know, bajillion, it might as well be dollar gap. I think it's 40 trillion or however they call it. But there's this, still this enormous global gap in infrastructure funding. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation about whether China's Belt and Road Initiative is encouraging a race to the bottom or a race to the top in terms of the quality of infrastructure being built. And that's up for debate. I'm not really sure. But it's definitely encouraged the West to step back into that space after 20 years of being uh, very much stepping away from it. Um, and, you know, Biden himself is trying to harness more private sector investment and to encourage allies to invest in infrastructure globally again. And that's I think that's going to have legs far beyond, you know, even if the slogan within China is less and less used, that's, that's, that's going to define the next decade, at least, I think. So I think it's, it's, yeah, in, in weird ways, it's had a maybe positive effect overall in spurring a reinvestment in infrastructure globally, even if it's being driven by like weird competitive um, uh, sentiments towards China. Um, so, yeah. I think it's definitely that impact is going to grow. Juliet Liu, I want to thank you again for uh, this uh, excellent primer on Belt and Road. And yeah. obviously there is a lot more to talk about. And uh, we'd love to have you back to continue the conversation. Great. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thanks a lot. Yeah.